trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to start things on kind of a negative note, but uh, I need you to know that uh, over the weekend, I tested positive for a dangerous new freedom variant that apparently is causing people to ignore government and to just live their lives. I got it. I got it bad. And what's worse is I'm going around infecting others with this same freedom variant uh, way of thinking. Isn't that sad? Okay, maybe not. Anyway, I'm glad you could join us today. This program exists because there are people who are uh, nonetheless uh, standing at a bit of a crossroads trying to figure, what do I do? As they look and see what's going on around them, they recognize they have a choice to make. I can participate in this. I can go along with it. I can stand up for things that I believe are important enough to stand up for. And the question is, you know, how far do I go? How far am I willing to go to stand up and assert my individual autonomy? This is especially true if you're one of those people who is uh, perhaps facing the imminent loss of a job because of uh, various vaccination mandates. Now, there have been some interesting developments in the last couple of days. And a federal judge actually struck down part of the the Biden administration's uh, vaccine mandates. But, boy, it's it's crazy. Now that the push to mandate kids ages 5 to 11... Seems to be picking up speed. So, yeah, we have some choices to make here. And one of the things I wanted to do is begin with with an article by Barry Brownstein, who is one of the marvelous voices of reason that we can turn to in times like this. You know, he points out a lot of people would, would likely aspire to stand against tyranny. I think most of us would do it as long as it's not too uncomfortable, right? But he also spells out how resisting tyranny depends on having the courage not to conform. And sometimes that's that's easier said than done. Barry Brownstein starts with uh, social psychologist Roy Baumeister, who begins his book, Evil, Inside Human Violence and Cruelty, with a proposition that would be counterintuitive to many. And this is the, the proposition. Evil usually enters the world unrecognized by the people who open the door and let it in. Most people who perpetrate evil do not see what they are doing as evil, end quote. I admit that is kind of counterintuitive. Isn't, isn't it easier to believe that, well, you know, they know darn well what they're up to and they know very well that they are in the wrong. But oftentimes people don't. And as Barry Brownstein writes, he says, dismissing evildoers as insane is an attempt to both absolve them and you of responsibility. Baumeister observes, people do become extremely upset and abandon self-control with violent results, but that's not insanity. If only insane people commit evil acts, you might reason there's no need to strengthen spiritual and moral muscles. You might skip the reflection, study, and practice that builds spiritual and moral strength. So Baumeister asks, would you obey orders to kill innocent civilians? Would you help torture someone? Would you stand by passively while the secret police hauled your neighbors off to concentration camps? Bowmeister writes, no, most people would say no. 
But when such events actually happen, the reality is quite different. So today, to the point, will you obey orders to fire upon people who refuse to comply with mandates? Brownstein writes in one of the most instructive books about Nazi Germany. It's titled Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Historian Christopher Browning explores why most people say yes and even commit heinous acts even when given latitude to say no. Now, the men of Police Battalion 101 were not specially selected psychopathic killers. Initially, that battalion was set up to enforce Nazi rule in occupied Poland. And eventually their mission changed, bringing them to be the genocidal murderers of Jews they were charged with rounding up. Browning explains, the bulk of the killers were not specially selected, but drawn at random from a cross-section of German society. And they did not kill because they were coerced by the threat of dire punishment for refusing. Mostly, they were middle-aged reserve policemen. So battle hadn't driven these men to depravity. They hadn't been fired on, nor had they lost comrades. Browning explores one of the initial murderous actions, shooting some 1,500 Jews in the Polish village of Josephau in the summer of 1942. Major Wilhelm Trapp addressed his men before the shooting began. Pale and nervous, with choking voice and tears in his eyes, Trapp visibly fought to control himself as he spoke. The battalion, he said, plaintively had to perform a frightfully unpleasant task. This assignment was not his, to his liking. Indeed, it was highly regrettable, but the orders came from the highest authorities. Trapp provided a justification for the coming slaughter. Jews were damaging Germany and threatening German troops, but then Trapp made an extraordinary offer. If any of the older men among them did not feel up to the task that lay before him, he could step out. The task outlined by Trapp was the immediate killing of all women, children, and the elderly. Only 12 out of the approximately 500 in the battalion initially took Trapp's offer to step out. Browning estimated 10 to 20% of those actually asked to be assigned to the firing squads, uh, extricated themselves by less conspicuous methods, or they asked to be released from the firing squads once the shooting had begun. Yet for most of the police, killing became second nature. Many reserve policemen who were horrified in the woods outside of Josephau subsequently became casual volunteers for numerous firing squads and Jew hunts. Browning's research provides insights into the mindsets that fueled obedience. Who would have dared, one policeman declared emphatically, to lose face before assembled troops? Another said no one wants to be thought a coward. Not all who followed orders lacked moral consciousness, and other policemen, more aware of what what truly required courage, said quite simply, I was cowardly. Some of them rationalized their atrocities. It was possible for me to only shoot children, or to shoot only children. My neighbor then shot the mother, and I shot the child that belonged to her, because I reasoned with myself that, after all, without its mother, the child could not live any longer. To escape moral culpability, others offered the excuse of what difference could they make? Without me shooting the Jews, without me shooting rather, the Jews were not going to escape their fate anyway. How many managers are saying today, well, what difference can I make? If I don't fire the unvaccinated, somebody else will. And Browning explains, the men's concern for their standing in the eyes of their comrades was not matched by any sense of human ties with their victims. 
the Jews stood outside their circle of human obligation and responsibility. Today, hospital administrators are firing workers with robust natural immunity who faithfully served during the pandemic and refused the vaccine. Like the men in the battalion, these administrators are just following orders. So what would have happened that terrible day in 1942 if more policemen recognized the humanity of the other and had the courage not to conform? Today, what would happen if more businesses like In-N-Out Burger refuse to obey government edicts? In October, Stephen Davis, a Florida Fire Battalion chief, was fired for refusing to discipline department employees listed as unvaccinated. What would happen if more managers had the courage of Chief Davis? And this is the point you need to remember. Without obedience, tyranny fails. So Barry Brownstein says, During this time of COVID, we can learn lessons from Browning's book about how we treat people who make choices different from our own. We can notice when we fail to see the humanity in others. We can become aware when we justify an us-versus-them mindset. We can question our perceptions. To wait for Biden or Fauci to exchange first is to ignore our power of choice. Now, as far as the lessons learned, Browning reflects on the actions of the the battalion and asks, if obedience to orders out of fear of dire punishment is not a valid explanation, then what about obedience to authority? in the more general sense used by Stanley Milgram. And Browning wonders if there's a deeply ingrained behavior tendency to comply with the directives of those positioned hierarchically above, even to the point of performing repugnant actions in violation of universally accepted moral norms. Browning explains the notions of loyalty, duty, discipline, requiring competent performance in the eyes of authority, become moral imperatives overriding any identification with the victim. Normal individuals enter an agentic state in which they are the instrument of another's will. In such a state, they no longer feel personally responsible for the content of their actions, but only for how well they perform. Browning recounts Milgram made direct reference to the similarities between human behavior in his experiments and under the Nazi regime. And he concluded, men are led to kill with little difficulty. Now, there is more to this excellent article. We're going to come back to it just the other side of the break. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and you can read Barry Brownstein's essay for yourself. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, GovernYourIncome.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. By the way, uh, talking with Kendall Whiting from Lifesaving Food over the weekend, uh, Kendall said, look, he goes, uh, there is, uh, there's a great discount here for your listeners and I, I hope you can appreciate how incredibly generous this is. If you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout, when you purchase food storage from lifesavingfood.com, he will give you a 25% discount. This is big. And I got to tell you, if I, if I can be perfectly honest here, don't, even, even if you're not going to go through lifesavingfood.com, don't put off 
putting up some stores of food, having something extra for a rainy day. It's really important that we uh, take advantage of the time that we have to stock up because the likelihood of uh, bigger shortages and higher prices are, are definitely approaching. And I'm, I'm really trying hard not to, to scare you and not to sound like, uh, was it Henny Penny who ran around yelling? To, or I was Chicken Little talking about the sky falling. I don't know that the sky is falling, but I'm knowing it's, it's very wise to, to have some kind of reserves on which you can fall back if necessary. So go to lifesavingfood.com, use the coupon code HIDE at checkout, 25% discount. It's incredibly generous, and this is incredibly timely in terms of things that uh, would be useful. I've been sharing this article by Barry Brownstein about how resisting tyranny requires the courage not to conform. And I'm guessing that there's more than a few of us that find ourselves at that crossroads right now, either as an employee who's uh, facing, well, you either get uh, vaccinated or you lose your job, or perhaps as a manager or someone running a business who's being told, well, you know, you have to do this. It's for the greater good. So these are some of the lessons learned that uh, that hopefully will help us guide our actions. In the article, he talks about how Stanley Milgram from the Milgram Experiment noted that people far more infrequently invoke authority rather than conformity to explain their behavior. But uh, that he says that's for only the former seems to absolve them of personal responsibility, right? I was just following orders. Yet in the battalion case, many policemen admitted responding to the pressures of conformity because they were concerned about how would they be seen in the eyes of their comrades, not authority. Based on his research, Browning concludes, conformity assures, or assumes rather, a more central role than authority than in, in the uh, massacre at uh, Josephau. So the COVIDocracy, Barry Brownstein writes, demands we all conform and it shames those who make different choices. And Browning explains the dangers of a culture of shame, saying the shame culture, making conformity a prime virtue, impelled ordinary Germans in uniform to commit terrible crimes rather than suffer the stigma of cowardice and weakness and the social death of isolation and alienation vis-a-vis their comrades. The segregation of Jews was an enabler of evil actions. Browning points to pervasive banishment of Jews from German society and the resulting exclusion of the Jewish victims from any common ground with the perpetrators made it all the easier for the majority of the policemen to conform to the norms of their immediate community, meaning the battalion and their society at large, meaning Nazi Germany. For some policemen who did not shoot, their commercial ties shaped their view of human beings. One said... Through my business experience, especially because it extended abroad, I had gained a better overview of things. Moreover, through my earlier business activities, I already knew many Jews. Harvard social psychologist Gordon Allport developed his famed contact hypothesis in the 1940s, which says increasing exposure to out-group members will improve attitudes toward that group and decrease prejudice and stereotyping. Commercial ties bring people together. Today's politicians work over time demonizing, mocking, and punishing out-of-group mem- out members who won't obey their dictates. Now, Barry Brownstein shares a story of nonconformity here. He says, Tim, a business owner and reader from New Zealand, sent me his powerful testimony in an email recently. Tim said, 50-odd years ago, as a young child, I went to Renui Primary School in suburban Auckland. There were two Maori boys in my class of nine-year-olds. 
Sometimes through the day, they would make short comments to each other in Maori. If the teacher heard them do it, he would keep our entire class in detention after school for 15 to 30 minutes. I always hated it because one of the boys was my friend and a regular playmate of mine after school. The other one used to walk home from school with me for, used to walk home with me too because they were my friends. But he says most of the class blamed these two Maori boys for us all being locked in after school. The majority of the kids disliked and bullied them in, in my class. But he says I couldn't do it. I couldn't dislike them because they were my friends. Perhaps even then, as a boy, I could see what our teacher was doing. Our teacher was using the rest of the class as a weapon against those two young boys by encouraging the spiteful and discriminating attitudes towards them. Now, Barry Brownstein points out Tim's choice to not conform to social pressure made all the difference to his Maori friends. Did Tim's ability to see the humanity in others help him become a successful entrepreneur? After all, entrepreneurs succeed when they help serve the needs of others. Tim continues his testimony. He says, Today, 50 years later, I am again feeling the same way I did back in my Renui primary school class. The teacher is telling us all that we will continue to be locked in until 90% or whatever of the country is vaccinated. And further, we're told that it is the fault of the 20% or so that have so far chosen not to accept the two shots in the arm. As a country... We are all encouraged to heap blame and hate towards anyone who has decided not to vaccinate. But Tim says, regardless of my own vaccination status, I have family and friends who I refuse to hate or blame. I lay the blame exactly where it belongs, at the feet of my primary school teacher for our detentions, not my two boyhood friends, and at the feet of our prime minister for her lockdown rules, not my friends and family who've chosen to decline an injection that they don't trust, rightly or wrongly. End quote. Barry Brownstein says, be like Tim. Be like the 10 to 20% of Battalion 101 who didn't conform. Our scorn should be towards those who demand our obedience and split America into an in-group and an out-group. He says, become more aware when you allow your thinking to be hijacked by propaganda. Many in the battalion didn't understand their crimes until decades after the war ended. Don't wait to reflect until a future historian writes a book about how you supported tyranny by placing conformity above human rights. Today, Charles Eisenstein points out, many people trust the authorities and willingly comply with their rules. They face no dilemma, no initiatory moment, no self-defining, world-creating choice point. Not yet. Brownstein writes, conforming, lacking courage, will not spare you from the choices that life will demand of you. Eisenstein challenges us. As the authorities' narratives devolve into absurdity and their rules devolve into oppression, more and more of us will face this choice. To do what you know is right, or to cave to the pressure, consoling yourself with words you don't believe, I had no choice. He says, we all have a personal responsibility for preserving freedom. The price of abdicating our responsibility is high. And as Browning puts it, the Germans paid a high price for placing uncritical trust in the firm leadership of seemingly well-intentioned political authority between 1933 and 1945. Beautifully written. And really, what it comes down to today, at least from, from my, my humble observation post here, if people better understood the legitimate role of government and the legitimate limits 
on the upper powers or the upper limits of powers that government can rightfully exercise, you would find people much more inclined to resist the various mandates. Because they would understand there are some places where government simply does not have legit authority to tell you what to do. Regardless of whatever sophistry is being served up at the moment. Well, you know, there was a Supreme Court case once that said this. So anything you can do to further your understanding of what government, uh, what its proper role is, as well as what its improper role is, is going to help you to not be caught up in the mentality of, hey, I was just following orders, or I was just, you know, doing what I was told. Knowledge really is power in this sense. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. My goal any given day that I'm doing this program is not to uh, make you firm in what or who you are against. Yes, there was a red meat throwing phase of my career, but uh, I've left that behind. More than anything, I'm trying to help you understand who you are and what you stand for. Now, do you understand the distinction here? I'm not telling you who you are and what you stand for, but simply trying to remind you and trying to inspire you to figure that out for yourself to where you are so firm and so clear that uh, you can't be bullied. You can't be bribed or otherwise misled into doing things that are harmful. And given the amount of vaccine authoritarianism that's become normalized in our daily life, I mean, it would be shocking if we were looking at this from two years ago. Think about what life was like just two years ago compared to today. We had no clue what was coming. Max Borders has an excellent article published on the American Institute for Economic Research website which uh, explains how our current VAX mandates are a modern version of bootleggers and Baptists from just a few generations ago. And if that's a phrase that you haven't heard before, you should, you should check this out because it's, it's a very useful, useful historical lesson from history. Max Borders begins with a quote from Jane Jacobs from Systems of Survival. The quote says, this is behavior that picks and chooses precepts from both syndromes, talking and trading, creating monstrous moral hybrids. Now, in way of disclosure, the very first thing Max Border says is, I'm vaccinated against COVID-19. So he says, allow me to inoculate myself from any charges that I'm an anti-vaxxer. He says, I'm not. Yet I join millions of people worldwide who are unsettled by vaccine mandates like those issued from the Biden administration and from states like California. First, he says we should ask whether the mandates make sense from a public health perspective. And then if not, we want to make sense of why authorities would double down on measures with such weak public health justification. First of all, he says the mandates make no apparent sense. Before we get into the political economy of what slinks from the coital bed of government and pharma, we need to briefly get into the reasons why the current public health case for mandates and passports makes no sense. Number one, school children currently have negligible risks from COVID-19. Subjecting kids to risks like myocarditis, pericarditis, and thrombosis, however small, 
is not based on any rational assessment of the current data on COVID disease risks to children. So if the main argument for mandatory child vaccination is, well, it protects adults, not only do COVID vaccines have diminished effectiveness through time, but they also do precious little against transmissibility after just two months, especially against the variants currently raging worldwide. Breakthrough cases are legion. Waning vaccine effectiveness is well-documented. He says, disclosure number two, despite being vaccinated, I contracted COVID and passed it on to my vaccinated partner and unvaccinated children. Of course, no one has studied the long-term effects of mass RNA vaccination, either on adults or children. And even the clinical trials on children are dubious. So it's strange to hear the usual boosters, no pun, of a more expansive regulatory state want to move full throttle enforcing experimental therapies upon kids. Number two, Max Borders says vaccine mandates introduce unnecessary risks to the scores of millions of Americans who are COVID recovered. Study after study after study demonstrates that people who have recovered from COVID have robust, durable immunity, which is as good or better than vaccine immunity. There's no reason people with natural immunity should be compelled to undergo any therapy whose long-term effects are unknown. Never mind that the magnitude of the lower risks is still being studied. One COVID-recovered law professor sued his university for just such a mandate. And number three, he says vaccine mandates are questionable even for those who've not yet contracted COVID-19. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. Adults ought to weigh the known and unknown risks of any medical decision for themselves and seek proven early treatment if they contract the virus. He says, as I pointed out above, the case for vaccine-based community protection is weak, and it's growing weaker by the day. It's frankly bizarre that we are living in such a time that authorities fancy it's okay to force anyone to undergo therapies that are still considered experimental. Such is not to argue that riskier experimental therapies shouldn't be an option for people in a pandemic, but it is simply to argue against compulsion. Now, the good news is that millions of people around the world are in open rebellion against these mandates and the authorities who issue them. And the Rebel Alliance, believe it or not, is not just a covey of uh, anti-vaxxers. People of conscience, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, think these mandates are wrong. Mainstream media apparatchiks will continue to peddle talking points to justify these authoritarian measures. But the great unvaxxed aren't having it. Current scientific findings at 13,000-plus physicians support their intransigence. So given that extensive research mitigates or militates against purported rationale for vaccine mandates, we have to ask, why then? Well, the answer might have something to do with the dynamics of political economy. Here's a phrase you've heard before, follow the money. Max Border says, at the risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to tell a story. I'll use readily available information to form a rough timeline and a hypothesis that evokes traditional public choice theory. For the uninitiated, public choice theory is a branch of economics that deals with the behavior of actors operating in a matrix outside of normal market conditions, such as within the political realm. Our story begins in Wuhan, China, December 2019, or so it would seem. There, a mysterious virus, excuse me, had begun claiming lives. As you'll see, we'll have to go back a little further than that. Still in December 2019, the world had started to notice. The virus soon spread beyond China, and by February 2020, 
the pandemic raged globally. In January of 2020, a little-known company called Moderna developed their mRNA vaccine with a grant from BARDA. That's a sub-agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, but in close collaboration with the NAIAD. That's the Federal Infectious Disease Agency headed by Anthony Fauci. Indeed, the NIH shares the patent with Moderna. All told, government officials spent $2.5 billion to bring Moderna's vaccine to market, with almost $1 billion going to research and development. Moderna NIAID entered clinical trials for its mRNA vaccine on March 15, 2020, which means this research had begun or been accelerated at a pace unknown to most bureaucracies. Now, he says readers will note that just six weeks before the start of Moderna NIAID's clinical trials, NIAID director Anthony Fauci maintained close contact with key stakeholders involved in a multi-year program that included risky gain-of-function research. The exchanges culminated in a now-famous Saturday conference call on February 1st, 2020. That call included included Scripps Research microbiologist Christian G. Anderson, who had warned Fauci by email a couple of days prior that some of the features potentially look engineered. Now, Scripps Research is no stranger to using and allegedly misusing NIH largesse, so it's no surprise Anderson would refer to any theories of lab leaks or engineered viruses as crackpot theories. Also present in that teleconference was NIH Director Francis Collins, who amidst amidst increased calls to fire Fauci, recently resigned his own post. Along with Fauci at the center of questions surrounding the dangerous gain-of-function research is Peter Daszak. His nonprofit, EcoHealth Alliance, directed $600,000 in NIAID grants to the Wuhan lab between 2014 and 2019 as part of a grant to study bat coronaviruses. Dazak wrote to Fauci in the days after the Saturday teleconference to thank him for using his gravitas to dismiss the lab leak theory and propagate the SARS-CoV-2 natural origins theory. Now, Dazak was also behind publishing a letter to the venerable Lancet in which signatories denounced the lab leak theory and boosted the notion of a natural origin. Before the letter's publication, Dazak had written to a co-conspirator thus. We'll then put it out in a way that it doesn't link it back to our collaboration so we maximize an independent voice, end quote. The Lancet later condemned that letter, citing conflicts of interest. Now, as mentioned, Dazak's EcoHealth Alliance had also been a recipient of research funding over which Fauci had insight. So not only did Dazak fail to disclose an EcoHealth Alliance grant proposal to DARPA, denied because its research posed dangers eerily similar to that of the current pandemic virus, but Dazak allowed himself to be installed as one of the principal investigators for the World Health Organization commissioned to look into the Wuhan lab as a potential origin. Yeah, Max Border says the riffraff commonly refer to this as the fox guarding the hen house. I got to take a real quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm just going to take a quick moment here and encourage you to please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. There's a special section there just for my sponsors. And I'm not saying you should probably grab your pocketbook while you uh, go and look at the website. But I would love for you to do business with my sponsors, to refer people to them, or even just drop them an email and let them know that their message is reaching your ears. I'm sharing an article here from Max Borders from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is explaining vaccine authoritarianism. And I have to admit the timeline that he is building right now about how the the vaccine and the principal shareholders who were behind it all fit together. Pretty fascinating stuff. So we walked through that in the last segment. Max Borders says, okay, now excuse the interruption, but he says, what on earth does all of that that we covered before have to do with vaccine mandates? The answer is in one of the email exchanges uncovered by a Judicial Watch Freedom of Information uh, request, a January 20th, 2020 email initiated by NIH officials included a Wuhan pneumonia report along with a timeline of the initial outbreak in China to that point. The report also details a portfolio administered by none other than Peter Daszak of the nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance. Peter Daszak has funded for work to understand how coronaviruses evolve and jump to human populations with an emphasis on bat, coves, and high-risk populations at the human-animal interface. Main foreign sites are in China, including co-investigators at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, Max Borders says, said co-investigators included Fang Li of the WIV, who was to carry out research that sounds conspicuously similar to what lay folk now refer to as gain of function. But the exchange also describes another grant to a team of investigators using mouse models of SARS and MERS to investigate COVID pathogenesis and develop vaccines and therapeutics. Chimeric or so-called humanized mice used in the Wuhan EcoHealth Alliance research are now coming under greater scrutiny as potential pandemic vectors, belying Fauci's statements before Congress. Then under a section of the report simply called Vaccines, NIH authors write, quote, the Vaccine Research Center and collaborators have established have stabilized rather the MERS-CoV spike protein in its prefusion conformation. The stabilized spike protein is potently immunogenic and elicits protective antibodies to the receptor binding domain, N-terminal domain, and other surfaces of the spike protein. The stabilized coronavirus spike protein and mRNA expressing the spike protein through collaboration with Moderna Therapeutics is currently being evaluated in the humanized DPP-4 mouse model at UNC. End quote. By the way, there are links to everything he's accessing in this article, so it's, it's worth your time to go to the actual article and, and follow up and see that this is not just, you know, conjecture. Needless to say, Max Border says it's, it's odd that the startup Moderna had been at the center of all this parallel research on bat coronaviruses for years leading up to the Wuhan outbreak and thus joined at the hip with Fauci's NIAID. So to be fair, the gain-of-function vision which Anthony Fauci has always supported with a full throat was to figure out how to develop an arsenal of therapeutics to combat any given virus that might leap from an animal to a human. The whole idealistic premise had been that researchers would collect viruses and find likely candidates for zoonosis in a, in a lab. 
then authorities would be able to fund drug makers to create vaccines. As Fauci wrote back in 2012, scientists working in this field might say, as indeed I have said, that the benefits of such experiments and the resulting knowledge outweigh the risks. It is more likely that a pandemic would occur in nature, and the need to stay ahead of such a threat is a primary reason for performing an experiment that might appear to be risky. A more cynical interpretation of the above might be that these stakeholders would benefit from a grave warning shot, like the COVID-19 pandemic. But a more charitable understanding of events is that Fauci's desire to save the world from pathogens had been vindicated, indeed accelerated, by a freak accident in Wuhan only they could clean up. Now that latter interpretation would only fly if the virus was thought to emerge naturally. Otherwise, the political equivalent of, hey, we dropped a match in the forest, so uh, we firefighters are going to get our hoses out now, would land with the public like a lead balloon. And for reasons that Fauci had anticipated long ago, they knew they had to get their stories straight. Thus, in the minds of Moderna executives, like the allegedly vicious Moderna CEO, Stefan Bansell and his partners at NIAID, including Fauci, the vaccine train had already left the station. It was a technocrat's dream, a public-private partnership for all humanity. The credulous, pious media continued to fawn over Fauci throughout 2020 and well into 2021. But remember, up to this point in the story, no MRA vaccine had ever been rolled out to the masses. Yet Fauci's reputation as public health papa put him squarely in the position of technocrat-in-chief when it came to the pandemic and how to control it. Moderna stood to make a metric ton of money on top of the investment largesse Fauci had already directed to the startup in the years leading up to the pandemic. But who could begrudge begrudge a life-saving hero becoming a billionaire? Now from here, Max Bordas talks about bootleggers, Baptists, and vaccine mandates. He says, I would not go so far as to speculate that Anthony Fauci might be playing out Munchausen by proxy on a societal scale, although some have gone there. Still, he says, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Fauci and his functionaries have behaved in a way that lends plausibility to orthodox public choice theory, specifically the theory of bootleggers and Baptists. In 1983, economist Bruce Yandel developed the bootleggers and Baptists framework to explain his belief that durable government action tends to come about with the support of two types of interest groups, those with moral interests and those with financial interests. Yandel appeals to early 20th century blue laws which prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sundays. Baptists, the moralists, were motivated by their beliefs that Sundays should be respected as a day of prayer and rest, not drinking. The bootleggers supported the ban too, but only because they would enjoy a thriving black market on those days and profit from illegal alcohol sales. Durable government action, according to Yandel, tends to emerge with the support of coalitions that share a common goal even if they don't share common motivations. Well, in a global pandemic, it has not been difficult to find a plethora of public health pieties. Nor has it been hard to find profiteers, especially pharma. Max Border says, I believe, I doubt rather that uh, Anthony Fauci has any financial interest in the Moderna NIAID vaccine, though investigators should look. He's in it for the glory. Still, the Moderna NIAID partnership puts the bootleggers, and the Baptists on the same team. Fauci, President Biden, and all the MSM Sentinels are the moralists in this equation. That is, if Professor Yandel will permit a not-so-bright line between moralism and savior complex. They want to be known as the ones who beat the pandemic, 
One might even say Fauci's been planning for this his whole career. Now he graces us with his presence daily on programs like The View, basking in the lamps, reminding us to wear our masks and get our vaccines. And the decrepit Biden, although he needs help getting up on that high horse once bestride it, holds his mighty executive pen aloft and commands the multitudes to get the jab or else. Waiting in the wings are shadowy corporate figures such as Moderna's Bancel, prepared to execute those technocratic plans using billions of dollars inked in red. Though howls against Big Pharma were once prominent in the progressive playbook, those have mysteriously been redacted. Like Anthony Fauci's Freedom of Information Act emails. When one stops to think that these billions will have to be repaid by the very children who won't have a choice but to get these vaccines, much less likely COVID, she might find the idea nauseous. A considerably more disturbing thought is that Fauci probably suspected all along that NIH funding led to the creation and accidental release of a virus that's killed 5 million people as of this writing. Anthony Fauci, he says, is a monopsony on funding for infectious disease research. He clearly does not want to be known as the guy in charge of funding the pandemic, even inadvertently. His defensiveness, his untruths before Congress, his moth-like draw to camera lights, all seem to reveal a man who, in his moralism, refuses to acknowledge that his agency had any hand in the damage COVID dealt. He wants to be America's doctor, and his grand plan has always been to vaccinate the world. In his favorite scenario, he would not be viewed as a negligent bureaucrat, but as a savior, and he wants to keep it that way. The researchers, the intermediaries, the pharma execs, they're in it for the money upon which their careers depend. So Max Borders says, my hypothesis then is tentative but bold, but it's that economist Bruce Yandel must have seen this coming a mile away. The vaccine mandates of 2020 and 2021 is a story of bootleggers colluding with Baptists. And so he says the only question that remains then is whether we're going to let them get away with it. Yikes. It's a great piece. This is worth your time. It'll take some time to read the article, click the links, and follow it further down the rabbit hole. You'll be better for doing so. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the show. Hey, whether you are a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned veteran of wrong think, I'm so glad that you are a part of what we're doing today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors. I've got an entire section on my website listed just for the sponsors. They include Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as GovernYourIncome.com. I'll have more to say about them coming up in just a few moments. Let's jump right in. I've got some really fun and a little bit of not-so-fun information to share with you today, simply because I believe there are people out there who are looking for a good, solid, principled take on what's going on around us, one that leads them not to a place of despair, 
and helplessness where, you know, it's everything sucks and there's nothing we can do. But uh, you can better understand what's happening in the world around you as well as understand what you can do at an individual level to make the world a better place, to make the right kinds of decisions that don't lead us further into the abyss. So here's one that's going to push a few buttons for a few people. We need risky playgrounds. Let's hear it for risky playgrounds. This is an article from Lenore Skenazy. Lenore Skenazy is uh, the, she's the person who coined the phrase free-range children. She also happens to be one of my favorite parenting experts because of this. And while she has been called the worst mother in America for uh, teaching her son, who I think he was eight or nine years old at the time, how to ride the New York subway system alone, and they would uh, make a, they would split up in New York City, she and her son, with, uh, with directions, okay, he knew how to, to find the right trains, and you're going to meet me at Macy's at, uh, you know, at this time. And he did it. And people were incensed. How could a mother do this to her poor child? Oh, the terrible things, the horror that child must have felt. And they're failing to see the flip side of the coin is, how empowered would a child be in knowing that they have the capacity, they're smart enough to, to figure out how to get through the city? Now, again, she didn't just turn him loose, you know, on, on his own with no previous experience. They went through a few dry runs to see how the system worked. Then he was allowed to do it on his own. I can't think of a better way to build confidence in your child. So when I hear her calling for risky playgrounds, I'm like, all right, I want to hear what Lenore Skenazy has to say here. And interestingly enough, this is a story that's coming out of Germany. And I only, I, I'm only surprised my daughter lives in Germany. She's raising her little girl there with her husband and... Um, the Germans are quite fond of order. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a very strong sense that we follow the rules. But uh, apparently Germany's adding more risk to its playgrounds. Some of its climbing structures are now three stories high. Who's requesting this? Are you sitting down? It's the insurance companies. Skenazy says they want kids to grow up risk-competent. Now, ironically, safety culture is stunting kids' risk-assessing abilities. Gaver Tully, who uh, should know, he's the founder of SF Brightworks and Tinkering School in San Francisco, also the author of 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Children Do. He says this is a fantastic program, or this is fantastic progress, rather, in understanding childhood is the right time for children to learn to recognize and mitigate risk. Now, an influential German study in 2004 found that children who had improved their motor skills in playgrounds at an early age were less likely to suffer accidents as they got older. That's according to reporter Philip Alterman in The Guardian. He adds, with young people spending an increasing amount of time in their own home, the Umbrella Association of Statutory Insurance and Accident Insurers rather in Germany last year called for more playgrounds that teach children to develop what they call risk competence. Now, Lenore Skenazy says that's music to an actuary's ears and also to some parents. She says, my friend, Sioban, is a New York native who moved to Germany. A few years ago, when her daughter was in elementary school, she says the school replaced the standard playground equipment with four long, thick trees with their branches removed, all interconnected with wide ropes and wobbly bridges made of rubber. The whole thing was maybe six feet at the tallest point, but the trees had been polished, so they were slippery. Sure enough, says Soban, the very first week they were installed, a girl fell off and broke her arm. Now, as as an American, she says, I anticipated the outrage that would surely follow. 
My heart was in my throat as I eavesdropped on other parents at pickup the other the, the following day. What did I hear? Children need to learn their limitations. That probably sounds best in a Clint Eastwood voice. Man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> no lawsuit? No tear this thing down? Skenazy's friend was thrilled. Lenore Skenazy says this more accepting approach to risk is starting to take hold beyond Germany. That's according to Tim Gill, author of Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities. He says even international safety standards organizations, often the fun police when it comes to playgrounds, are coming around to a more balanced, pro-risk view. So while the appetite for risk here in America is perhaps a little slower to develop, New York City built its first adventure playground, the yard, in 2016, complete with hammers, nails, plenty of wood, and saws, and it stands by its credo, no parents allowed. Lenore says, as a denizen of play conferences, I can attest that a lot of play scholars are eager for more exciting playgrounds. Unfortunately, that runs smack into our culture's habit of underestimating kids, overestimating danger, and hiring trial lawyers. In 2019, a family that sued the Howell Township, New Jersey School District, where their daughter fell off the slide and broke her arm, won a settlement of $170,000. And their lawyer had argued the slide's slope was too steep, as it was at a 35-degree angle rather than a 30. Now, perhaps out of fear of just that kind of thing, one school district in Richland, Washington, just plain got rid of its swings, arguing, well, swings have been determined to be the most unsafe of all the playground equipment. Yeah, because all the merry-go-rounds and seesaws have already been uprooted. Lenore Skenazy says, Thus does American childhood remain, for the most part, a mulch-chip, no-slip, primary-colored plastic safe space. Or, as a German insurance exec might put it, a risk-ignorance breeding ground. Now, I get it. That's, that's pushing some buttons there. But I think it's actually pretty solid in terms of the, the reality is kids need to be able to, to experience risk and assess risk. And helicopter parenting is just not the way that you're going to get good, self-actuated, actuated rather, confident kids who can go out there and stand on their own two feet. I don't want to sound conspiratorial on this, but I, I sometimes worry that, uh, particularly within the public school setting, we, we've seen great effort to, to try to get kids out of that mindset. To put them in a mindset where, you know, it's, you have to do what, you, what we say, and, you know, avoiding risk is always the primary, you know, directive here. We can't have any kind of risk whatsoever. Sounds like a good way to stunt your growth. And it, it leads me to, to another question here, and this one, this one is going to actually go into some uncomfortable territory, but, uh, but I want to go there. The current push to vaccinate kids between 5 and 11 years old strikes me as, as baffling as well as unnecessary. Found a great article from Vasco Kohlmeyer titled, Why Do They Want to Vaccinate Children? Just want to share a couple of thoughts on this. Vasco Kohlmeyer says, FDA advisory panel okays Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11. That was a recent NBC News headline. How could a panel that is supposedly composed of rational, clear-headed scientists make such an inexplicable recommendation? Well, Kohlmeyer says, consider the following facts. 
according to a presentation by Fiona Havers, who works at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and who's a member of the agency's COVID-19 response team. During the 12-month period, October 2, 2020, through October 3, 2021, there were 66 COVID-19-associated deaths in children ages 5 through 11. No, you heard it correctly. In the last 12 months, there were only 66 COVID-related deaths in the 5 to 11-year-old demographic in the whole of the United States of America. To give you some perspective, children in that age bracket are 300% more likely to be murdered, 207 deaths, and 30% more likely to die of flu and pneumonia, 84 deaths, than they are to die of COVID. To give another point of comparison, according to the CDC in 2019, 608 children passengers ages 12 and younger died in motor vehicle crashes. So please contemplate this point well. Children under 12 years of age are nearly 1,000% more likely to be killed in a vehicular mishap than to die of COVID-19. One more piece of reference data. According to Statista, there were 20 deaths and 100 injuries due to lightning strikes in the United States in 2019. So to put this back into the COVID question, your child is nearly 200% more likely to be struck by lightning than to be felled by COVID. But even that doesn't tell the whole story. Because not all of those children who died with COVID died of COVID. Most of them had seriously un- serious underlying conditions, which contributed to their demise. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, this is good news for anybody who's actually uh, within the sound of my voice in the state of Utah, in that if you are looking for a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan that you need without delay. And as red hot as the real estate market has been, that's a big consideration. You've got to act quickly. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Click the email link I provide in the show notes. that will connect you directly to Heather. And you can also visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. So I'm sharing this article here from Vasco Kohlmeyer about uh, why do they want to vaccinate children? And look, you know, you may think I'm just totally anti-vax. No child should ever have vaccinations. Um, no, that that doesn't describe it uh, well at all. I I think that there's something about this vaccine that is just not justified, given the risk that children face. And when you consider that, yes, uh, 66 children died of COVID or died COVID-related deaths in the last year if they were between the ages of 5 and 11, only 66 in the entire United States. But you got to remember that most of those who died had some very serious underlying conditions, 
So they died with COVID instead of of COVID because of things like obesity or chronic metabolic disease or feeding tube dependence or cardiovascular disease or neurologic disorders, chronic lung disease, blood disorders, immunosuppressed conditions and other conditions. So to state the situation in a different way, it's virtually unheard of for a healthy, active child to die of COVID-19. For all practical purposes, the chance of your healthy child dying from this disease is zero. Even the scaremongering New York Times had to concede that to healthy children, the danger of severe COVID is so low as to be difficult to quantify. In other words, the risk is basically non-essential, so the obvious que- non-existent rather. So the obvious question here is this: Why are we going to mass vaccinate healthy kids against COVID nineteen, given that they face virtually no serious risk from this particular disease? Now, the only valid medical reason for a vaccination of this age cohort would be to stop the spread of infection, but that can't be the case because it's now widely known that the COVID vaccines do not prevent infection. This was publicly affirmed some three months ago by none other than CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Speaking of the vaccines in her CNN interview on August 5th with Wolf Blitzer, Walensky said what they can't do anymore is to prevent transmission. Now, the combination of extremely low COVID risk to the young and the vaccine's inability to prevent transmission is what makes vaccinating children a non-sequitur from the point of view of public health. Not only is there no real benefit in doing so, but there are also considerable risks associated with this procedure. It's well known that the COVID vaccines have not been properly subjected to trials and tested. It normally takes between 6 and 10 years to develop and test a vaccine that can be declared safe and effective for mass implementation. The COVID shots have been around for less than 18 months which makes it impossible to know what their long-term side effects may be. Meanwhile, in the short term, we have every reason to be concerned about these inadequately tested pharmaceuticals. According to an analysis of the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System database, or VAERS, between December 2020 and October 15th of this year, there have been records of more than 17,000 deaths and 800,000 adverse reactions in connection with the vaccines. And by the way, there's, there is a link to the study that shows this. So just so you know, Vasco Kohlmeier isn't pulling this out of uh, thin air. This, however, doesn't give a true picture, he says, though, as it represents just a small fraction of the actual cases. According to a Harvard study, only about 1% of vaccine injuries get logged in the VAERS database. So do the math. This being said, it doesn't mean that there's a causal connection in every reported case between the vaccine and the bad health event. Nevertheless, in a substantial portion of reported cases, such a connection does exist. So keeping in mind the findings of the Harvard study should give you an idea of how deep our safety concerns should be. And yet despite all this, members of the FDA advisory panel still thought that injecting children who have virtually zero risk of serious COVID with these inadequately tested substances is a good idea. Vasco Kohlmeier says to say that this is reckless and irresponsible would be an understatement. Why would they do such a thing? Well, his answer is money is the main reason. The effort to inject your children is primarily driven by a desire to further increase the already immense profits of the pharmaceutical giants 
that produce these vaccines. The dictum, follow the money, applies well here. A recent U.S. news headline should give you a good idea of what's involved. The headline reads, Pfizer expects 2021-2022 COVID-19 vaccine sales to total at least $65 billion. Pfizer's COVID vaccine stands to become the most profitable pharmaceutical product in history. And you can easily see through their game when you look at who sits at the advisory panel that issued the recommendation. According to a report issued by Zero Hedge, the meeting roster shows that numerous members of the committee and temporary voting members have worked for Pfizer or have major connections to Pfizer. Members include a former vice president of Pfizer vaccines, a recent Pfizer consultant, a recent Pfizer research grant recipient, a man who mentored a current Pfizer vaccine executive, a man who runs a center that gives out Pfizer vaccines, the chair of a Pfizer data group, a guy who was proudly photographed taking a Pfizer vaccine and numerous people who are already on the record supporting coronavirus vaccines for children. Meanwhile, recent FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is on Pfizer's board of directors. And really is kind of a remarkable coincidence, right? And if this weren't bad enough, the acting chair of the board that made the recommendation was one Albert S. Monto, who was a paid Pfizer consultant up until 2018. Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of mRNA vaccines and a true and honest scientist, called this a staggering conflict of interest. Vasco Kohlmeyer says it also shows how brazen these people are, since they did this in open view. He says this is part of a larger pattern whereby nearly all regulatory agencies of the U.S. government have fallen into the hands of those they are supposed to oversee. The name for this process is regulatory capture. As a result, we can no longer have trust in government bodies tasked with protecting the safety and well-being of the population. To endanger the health of children in the absence of a medical justification and for the sake of profit is a travesty of unspeakable proportions. And by the way, I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but Vasco Kohlmeyer was born and grew up in former communist Czechoslovakia. So if you want to talk about somebody who's actually seen firsthand what uh, what real honest-to-goodness tyranny and authoritarian control is like, yeah, this, this guy has, has been there. He's seen it and experienced it firsthand. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I would encourage you while you're there, please look at the sponsor links. If you have the chance, click on the one titled GovernYourMoney.com. A lot of people who are facing the possible loss of job over vaccine mandates are really scrambling right now trying to find, what can I do? How can I be totally independent in my income? Well, I think if you click on this link, you may find some possible answers. It's, it's day trading on the foreign currency exchange markets or the Forex markets. And GovernYourIncome.com is a company that will train you how to do those trades And then actually give you company money to go out there and make money. It's not for everybody, but if it's for you, I think it'd be worth your time. If you're dead serious about having a solid income that uh, could be yours, you could work from anywhere that has an internet connection, this might be worth looking at. You'll find the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know I'm beating the drum again here for these vaccine mandates, but really I see this as one of the defining issues of our time. And I'm sad to see that so many people are in a position where they are really seriously having to choose between do I follow my conscience or do I go ahead and and sell that last little bit of my conscience, you know, for the sake of keeping a job or keeping peace, you know, as, as the case may be. It's a really unenviable position and it's not one they put themselves in. The folks who are issuing these mandates are the ones uh, who are to blame. But this much can't be denied. The VAX mandate on businesses is intensifying our national crisis. And actually, we have several overlapping crises. So where exactly it's going to lead, nobody is sure. I like Jeffrey Tucker's take on this. The mandate on business intensifies the crisis. This is from the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. Tucker says it's hard to imagine that public confidence in everything could fall further, but it surely will. In fact, he says this last week was emblematic. We saw Biden's party face an electoral route last Tuesday due to mostly pandemic policy. Even the education controversies in Virginia traced to disastrous school closures, followed two days later by an intensification of those very policies with a vaccine mandate on companies with 100 or more employees. That was followed by an announcement from Pfizer the very next day that they have a new therapeutic pill that is 89% effective, in which case, why the vaccine mandate? Tucker says that's more than enough to make one's head spin. But then it got worse. The same day, the head of the CDC claimed on Twitter that masks reduce your chance of COVID infection by 80%, a claim without a shred of evidence in the scientific literature. He says at this point, it seems they will say anything knowing full well that the fact-checkers will leave alone any high official in the federal government. So he says, let's focus on the mandate on business. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has thankfully issued a stay on the entire order pending a closer review, citing grave constitutional problems with the OSHA order. The Biden administration is being asked to respond by, uh, I guess by today, as of this writing. And he says the edict itself relies most fundamentally on the claim that immunity acquired through infection appears to be less protective than vaccination, which Jeff Tucker says is unproven and likely false. And it's imposed in the midst of evidence all around us that the previous public sector and contractor mandate has led to sick outs, resignations and unpaid leave announcements hitting industrial sectors and cities all over the country. From airlines to fire departments to hospitals and academia. Yeah, they're seeing it. In Senate testimony, Anthony Fauci cited the fantastic success of mandates at United Airlines while failing to mention the hundreds of firings and the pilot and staff revolt at every other airline. Now, one would suppose that this mess would be enough to forestall more mandates, but no. Now all companies with 100 employees must force vaccines on its employees or else pay fines of $13,600 per violation. More precisely, the mandate is a masking and testing one with an exemption permitted for the vaccinated. And that little trick is designed to survive the flurries of inevitable court challenges. Yes, it overtly creates a segregated caste system based on one's willingness to submit to an injection via a government mandate. And these rules come into effect on January 4th of 2022, which means that businesses all over the country will spend the next two months trying to figure out what to do. 
Same with workers, many of millions of whom do not believe that they need and thus do not want this vaccine that neither stops infection nor transmission and is also associated with unusually high adverse effects for which the vaccine makers bear no reliability. Now, Jeffrey Tucker also points out, buried in the gigantic text is a request for public comment on expanding this to all businesses of any size. So there is no real escape in the long run. He says it's truly hard to imagine how this could happen in the U.S., But the same could be said about nearly everything that's happened in the last 21 months. Citizens are desperately struggling to get out from under the yoke of this despotism, and they're using every opportunity to do so. Politicians who back these policies are being swept out of office, and yet they carry on. It appears that the sadistic state is quickly becoming a masochistic one. Eleven red state governors have already filed lawsuits around the country, but these take time. And judges are incredibly unreliable. Some will reject the mandate. Some will embrace it. Then there are appeals, and those too take time. There will be the matter of toggling between various decisions. It sets up a war between the states, a war between judges, a war between bureaucracies at all levels. And for what? The public health rationale makes zero sense. Charles Blow, a very naive New York Times columnist who accidentally says things he should not, tweeted out an obvious question. Quote, I am mystified by how these southern states have such low rates of COVID where many of their governors haven't followed CDC guidance. Someone explain this, please. Please explain this to me. Well, he received an earful in the replies, but of course, he cannot change his mind. He works for the New York Times, and we all know where they stand. In fact, it's worse than what he says. The states where vaccination is the highest, Vermont, for example, are some of the places where infections are worse. Now, of course, the inevitable answer here is we'll get a booster and give more injections to people who are younger and younger, even if they are at near zero risk of severe outcomes. And even if we know for certain, 106 serious studies by now, that natural immunity, perhaps half or more Americans already have it, is 27 times as robust as vaccine immunity. The science is absolutely clear on this. And yes, he has a link to the 106 serious studies. But of course, this is really not about science, says Jeffrey Tucker. It's about political hegemony. Once the Biden administration decided this past summer that state by state they could predict vaccination rates by party affiliation, the deed was done. So they decided to use the shot to target their political enemies, vex them and show them who's boss. In particular... Washington, D.C. today despises Florida and Texas, which has siphoned off millions of residents from the lockdown states. The resentment of this and the realignment this will create in the future is palpable. But businesses can't wait for the courts to sort out this mess. Tucker says they have to act now. So HR departments are already putting together plans for imposing the mandates. This much is true, he says. Everyone who wanted a shot long ago got one. This leaves only people of various degrees of resistance, resentment, and anger. Many people will go along, but others will not, and so they will be fired. They will seek other employment in a company with fewer than 100 workers to provide a temporary reprieve. And then he points out that all of this is occurring in times of an unprecedented labor shortage, when perhaps 4.3 million people have gone missing. Businesses cannot find workers. Owners of businesses are having to work 18 hours a day, even as they face rising costs of 
nearly everything in this inflationary environment. Now they're being told that they must become the enforcers of vaccine, which will only intensify their resentment. And of course, none of this is truly enforceable. The Department of Labor has nowhere near the resources, especially since they too are firing people for their failure to comply with this mandate. Compliance devolves down the company level, pitting managers against employees and employees against each other. Tucker says, I'm going out on a limb here to say in public what many people tell me in private is true. There is a pandemic of forgeries in every sector that has attempted a mandate. Some people with vaccinations don't see the big deal here. Just get the jab, then you can be free. Others find this idea to be outrageous, an immoral acquiescence to power that could only lead to even worse outcomes. Businesses, meanwhile, just want to get on with doing business, but doing so will require they become enforcement agents for the CDC and vaccine companies. And he points out how this all flies in the face of an institution that has long been part of our public ethos. The medicine we take, our health information, the choices which we make over what to do with our bodies are no one's business. In a free and civilized society, individuals can keep all of this private. Vaccinated or not, only the individual should decide and the choice he or she makes should not be public knowledge. Famed quarterback Aaron Rodgers explained as much when he pushed back against the mob that denounced him for declining to get vaccinated. He had, he had previously said he was immunized, an excellent word choice to describe the reality of natural immunity. After further refusing the shot, the mob became angrier, demanding he immediately be fired. Well, the Aaron Rodgers controversy is a microcosm of a larger public health mess that's encouraged stigmatization, segregation, spying, and generalized brutality that's dividing companies, communities, and friends, spreading mistrust and anger without precedent in our lifetimes. And Jeffrey Tucker says a more incompetent conduct of public health is hard to imagine. Now, I don't know if that gave you any new insights. I just, I, I really like Jeffrey Tucker's ability to distill down into the essence of here's what is at stake. And I see nothing that he's written here that is, is out of character or, you know, amounts to hyperbole. The links are there in the story. You can follow them yourself if you want to see, does this really hold up? You can find this linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And hopefully come away a little stronger, a little more fortified against those who would tell you, you have to do it. It's for the public good, because now you know better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to throw a quick uh, word in here for lifesavingfood.com. Look, I don't care if, if you if you buy your food storage from lifesavingfood.com. That's great. They're a great sponsor. They're offering a terrific discount, 25% discount to my listeners when they use the coupon code HIDE. But I'm begging you, if you haven't considered putting away some stores for a rainy day, this is the time to do it. And you don't have to go out there and buy, you know, a whole truckload of food and food storage at once. But you've got to be consistently putting things away. Prices are continuing to go up. Uh, the supply chain crisis continues to intensify. We've never really known a time of need. Most of us have had very, very comfortable lives. 
but I can't shake this feeling that we are on the cusp of something that uh, we we could see a big shift. And and for the first time in our lives, many of us could know what it's like to have to do without. Don't let food be part of that uh, have to do without equation. Go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. In the show notes, you'll find links to all of my sponsors. Click on lifesavingfood.com. And again, with the coupon code HIDE, get 25% off at checkout. That's an incredibly generous discount, and it's an incredibly timely thing to be thinking about. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. Got two more quick topics I want to cover in this final segment. Um, one is just kind of how to protect yourself against uh, wokeism, the fatal flaw of wokeism. This is a guy writing under the pseudonym Steve Rose, so not his real name, but he he points out that wokeism is fatally flawed at the core, in that it pretends to be a road to universal harmony but it will never deliver. Wokeism might seem intimidating at first, but like the Death Star, critical weaknesses make it vulnerable. He says the most obvious flaw is that certain individuals claim to be oppressed while at the same time they're enjoying support from government, the media, academia, the entire entertainment industry, big business, and big tech. Now, you can either be a marginalized victim or enjoy the support of the most powerful institutions in existence, but not both. Wokeness also contradicts itself. Take the phrase, all white people are racist. Translation, people with this skin color are bad because they divide people up based on skin color. (sighs) Ah, that's a great way to put it. Wokeism takes superficial human traits such as skin color, which reveal truly nothing nothing truly important about an individual, and makes them the central organizing principle of society. They're trying to reorganize our entire society around superficial traits. And what about its effects? Does wokeism deliver on its promises? Exactly the opposite. Aside from making everyone miserable and poisoning the culture, wokeism makes race relations worse. But these obvious flaws only point toward deeper ones. Why does wokeism encourage victimhood for those with power, pretend to aim for harmony while stoking division, and elevate superficiality? Well, looking at how wokeism works helps explain. Steve Rose says, Wokeism lives and breathes through criticism and accusation. The strategy of let's all criticize each other's flaws until we love each other creates mutual implosion. It weaponizes human imperfection, but even more, wokeism is impossible. It's why even Hollywood, with its wealthy fanatics, fails at wokeness. It's not that there's a lot of work to do. The core ideas of the entire operation are flawed top to bottom. No matter how much work we do, it will never be enough. Wokeism assumes that criticizing people who do things wrong will make things right. It offers cheap, fast-food-style instant moral superiority for dummies. But these efforts to solve certain problems only create new, worse problems. Criticism assumes something to criticize. It parallels socialism's focus on wealth redistribution, assuming that wealth will always be there to to, uh, distribute. Both relationships are parasitic, and every hungry parasite requires a host. This is why they can't find enough actual race when they can't find enough actual racism, wokists invent race hoaxes. It's why wokeites have to retreat to subconscious racism and microaggressions and silences violence. Because conscious racism, actual aggressions and actual violence are rare. There isn't enough food for the parasite. The old host was already mostly sucked dry. But the woke rabbit hole goes even deeper. Imagine pointing any of this out to a diehard woke fundamentalist. What would he probably say? 
I disagree because reason, 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 reason. Well, those reasons would likely sound absurd to everyone, including the wokey. But that doesn't matter. Wokeism rejects reason itself whenever it's convenient. It's selectively Freudian by claiming that reason is the plaything of the passions, and reason is always mere rationalization. Under threat, the woke go sub-rational. In other words, wokeism is a fundamentalist religious cult immune to argument, logic, and evidence. Force this fact on them, and the woke cultists retreat to their self-declared pure hearts. Aren't our intentions good? Don't we mean well? Isn't our noble imaginary utopia worth sacrificing free speech, freedom of the press, religion, and all the rest? Aren't our noble goals worth breaking a few eggs? Don't those ends justify the means? Well, if that was accurate, Wokies would celebrate every success of women over the patriarchy, black individuals over white, LGBTQ individuals over straight, and so on. So, wokeism celebrates the triumph of Candace Owens, Clarence Thomas, Larry Elder, and Thomas Powell over white supremacy. It celebrates the triumph of Sarah Palin, Winsome Sears, and Amy Coney Barrett over the patriarchy. It celebrates the triumph of Richard Grinnell, Dave Rubin, and Douglas Murray over homophobia, right? Of course not. These individuals embody the victory of its alleged ideals, yet wokeism attacks them viciously and relentlessly. But why? And could the why reveal the what and how? See, the thing is, it's not really about skin color, gender, sex. Those are the vehicles by which people prove they will comply with and conform to the real agenda. And therein lies wokeism's most fatal flaw. It's a fraud. It's a phony, a sham, a fake, an old, to to go old school, it's a hypocrite. The noble aims of wokeism are fig leaves. Wokeism pretends to solve problems of race, gender, and so on, but underneath it's really just plain old communism. It's all about power. The lofty ideals are Trojan horses with communists inside. Under that sheep's clothing hides a wolf. That wolf is the same old poisonous Marxism dressed in new clothes. It's another variant strain of what murdered over a hundred million people oppressed countless others, and continues spreading misery across the globe. It's the same old cultural toxin, but now covered in sugar. Wokeism is a political Harvey Weinstein, using noble-sounding phrases to ca- causes rather to cover diabolical deeds. The woke clergy admit, admit this. Kendi says capitalism is essentially racist, and that racism is essentially capitalist. The founder of the BLM, we're trained Marxist, D'Angelo, capitalism is so bound up with racism. He's right, by the way. It's just class warfare under under a different uh, set of wrapping paper. Now, George Carlin spotted the fraud decades ago when he said political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. He saw more clearly than many today. Wokeism is intellectual herpes disguised as tolerance. It's a mind virus deliberately engineered to enslave humanity by hijacking the ideals of good people and turning those ideals against them. But here's the real thing to remember. It was invented by people who want more power over the rest of us. Someone comes to you with weaponized guilt and telling you, you need to give me more power over you. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're not looking to solve a real problem. They fooled many into just cruising around, gleefully correcting everyone according to rules they just made up, declaring this racist, that sexist, this offensive, etc. 
But Steve Rose says, uh, these nags aren't the morally superior crusaders they pretend to be. They're suckers. They're moral fast food junkies. They've been tricked by deceptive tactics into joining a political religious cult that persecutes outsiders. And he says, like anyone who constantly corrects everyone's grammar, grammar rather, they should be met with eye rolls, sighs, head shakes, and statements like, look, I'm not in your cult. Don't impose your morality on me. He says, being a member of an invasive, preachy, finger-wagging, fundamentalist political cult just isn't cool anymore. So now we know. The gig is up. It's time to strip away the disguises, drop the masks, and pull away every fig leaf at every possible opportunity. It's time to expose wokeism for what it actually is and be done with it. And learn from it so it never returns again. That's pretty straightforward stuff. Now I'm beginning to understand why he may be writing this under a pseudonym because uh, it's it really tells a tale. By the way, there's an article in the show notes, too, that I would really encourage you to take the time to read. It's from Thomas L. Knapp about how the metaverse, that's the big combined might of Facebook, Instagram, etc., is actually contributing by opening a door to panarchy and unanimous consent. Now, panarchy sounds scary, doesn't it? I think it's actually the best thing that we could, could have. What if you were able to choose the type of government under which you wish to live rather than having it forced upon you by a majority? That's what panarchy is. It's about having choices. You'll find the article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.